my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today. I'm off my game today. No, you're not. That's true. People are going to have to start making better content. I think we're going to be talking about this for a long time. When you program for everyone, you program for no one. I think it's that we're a purpose-driven platform. Like, we're trying to get to substance. How was that? Are you happy with that? Yeah. This is marketing therapy right now. It it really is. (laughs) What's up? I'm Laura Carrenti. And I'm Alexa Kristen. Welcome back, Adlandia. So, Alexa, I am out in Hollywood, Los Angeles, uh, which is so pertinent for our conversation to open up today's show, talking about the Emmys and our favorite show, Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso, big wins at the Emmys. I love this show. It brings so much joy and laughter. And as we were getting ready for this record, talking a bit about how a series on Apple TV Plus I think it's interesting to think about how Ted Lasso becomes brand, the ability to permeate the world of business management. You have some thoughts around this, uh, commerce, fandom in a different way. So knowing we're going to talk to our friends at The Morning Brew about niche community building through media, I thought this would be a fun place to start. I think it's a great place to start. I love Ted Lasso as well. 
Then when I see on Twitter, on LinkedIn, people talking about the business and management, like leadership lessons of Ted Lasso, quoting the show. And Laura, when you and I were talking about this, I said, there's an extension here, like an obvious extension of Ted Lasso NBA crash course or Ted Lasso leadership course. There's so much opportunity to start thinking about that content as a jumping off point for additional products. And I think that as Hollywood looked at product and product market fit and seeing that there is a huge product market fit around a business community that's dying for leadership lessons that actually makes you think a little bit differently and isn't this kind of heavy schlog of learning. And I think that that note, that kind of heavy, I'll call it, my, this is such an Alexaism, right? The heavy schlog of learning. But I think the point is, is that there's so many places and spaces where content can show up and have a different um, meaning or feed a different audience that maybe it originally didn't seek out to do, but they're finding that they have major footholds or fandom by creating these types of extensions or new products. And I think that's exactly what Morning Brew has done. Alex and Austin on the show, they talk about in this episode how they thought about building niche communities. And from a marketer perspective, I'm still kind of amazed that a lot of marketers get caught in the kind of mass media game versus building for niche audiences over and over and over in mass and finding these areas and building products to create fandom, to create what I call participation. So then you start to think about your metrics. Someone asked me about um, you know, how we were measuring things at GE last week. And I said, well, we went from the typical shares and likes and those types of things into participation. And from my perspective, I was talking about the podcast. I was talking about the message and how fans were popping up fan fiction and how they were doing cosplay. That is huge for a brand. And I think that Morning Brew understands this concept kind of fundamentally. I think Alex really started to see this when he started, really started to see that pull of the of the market demand, even at you know, University of Michigan, where they started this. The kind of focal point of the conversation that we have with them is around really starting to think about content and building content as products, products for niche audiences and serving those audiences um, in a way where they can't get um, what you're giving somewhere else. And then allowing, and this is huge, allowing those audiences to create in and around your IP. Because we are getting to the place where participation and ownership is king. These are the conversations around all the NFTs, around crypto and content. And so as marketers start to think about how do I allow my audience to start to participate and have maybe a piece of ownership, even if it's informal, um, how do we ignite imagination or creativity uh, with our audiences? that starts to become a very different model of media um, than I think we've seen before. Yeah, there's certainly the, the product roadmap that this requires, right? And moving from form factors to franchises 
in thinking about, you know, how you build for communities, engage with communities. And then there's the conversation for the CRO, right? And the sales mm. teams and how they're packaging this. So many times over the last few years on this show, we've talked about, you know, sitting uh, down with publishers talking about their pitch. And nine times out of 10, those pitch decks have started with how many people I reach, right? <laughs> yeah. It starts with, we have an audience of X. It's a wildly different entry point when you're talking about participation and how you price that accordingly. And with that, we'll be right back with Alex and Austin, co-founders of Morning Brew. All right, Adlandia, we are back with our partners at Yieldmo. If you remember, we spent our first mini series talking about how Yieldmo works with brands to make audience attention actionable. And in this mini series, we take on how contextual targeting is being reimagined as brands make every interaction with their consumer meaningful. Welcome, Lisa Bradner, GM of Data and Analytics from Yieldmo. Thank you so much. Great to be back. Always great to talk to you guys. So, Lisa, Talk to us about what is Yieldmo, what do you do at Yieldmo, and how are you working with your clients? Sure. Yieldmo is a smart exchange. We are focused on increasing the value of advertising inventory for buyers and sellers. We do that through data. And my job is to help bring the right data to bear so that we can help brands find the best impressions for their goals and do so in a privacy-safe way that is right for consumers. So Lisa, in helping brands find the right data, how much does context factor into that? And how is Yieldmo framing context as you bring data forward to your clients? At the highest level, context is everything, right? It's how do we show up as brands in an appropriate way when we're wanted, when we're helpful, and deliver a service so that we are just accepted as being in the right place at the right time. Super easy to say, super hard to do, right? It's kind of the marketing holy grail. But what we look at is the data, everything that's happening in the moment an ad is served. And we look at all of that data to understand what's going on, what's surrounding that ad, where is that ad showing up, what device is it on, is the person viewing that ad, paying attention to that ad, ad and spending time with it? We look at everything that is happening in that instant and helps clients figure out when their advertising is landing and when maybe it isn't landing as well as it could. So why do you think that contextual targeting is gaining increasing importance in today's marketplace? So I think when you say contextual targeting, that means different things to different people. But at the highest level, we are on a path of having less data available about the people we're serving ads to, right? So Google is sunsetting third-party cookies. Apple is already blocking on Safari third-party cookies. It is harder and harder for marketers to connect the data about an individual and how they move across the web. So without that data that marketers have become really reliant on, it's contextual is the alternative of how do I show up in the right way without leaning too hard on individuals' private data. But what Yieldmo is looking at is, you know, contextual 1.0 was, hey, here's an article about travel. Let's serve a travel ad. Um, we're not going that literal. 
we're looking to understand from the data, let the, let the ad experience tell us what ads are working with what content and what context and what time and what device and what place so that the data that comes back can be modeled by machines and tell advertisers where and when and how to place their ads. Contextual advertising, right? And you talk about kind of at its highest level, it has lots of different kind of meanings and machinations. Mm -hmm. But contextual advertising has become very in vogue in light of the cookie conversation. So cookies going away, which we know got pushed back, right? In terms of Google pushed the time back. However, it's a really interesting time for marketers to be thinking differently about contextual advertising. Why? And why has it come back into such kind of a focus for for marketers? It's a great question because I think there was a portion of the marketing world that when Google delayed the cookie deprecation went, phew, I don't have to think about that right now, right? Right. But the smart money is saying, this is real. I'm already actually losing a lot of iOS users. And most marketers, if they went in and really studied their programmatic campaigns, I think they would be surprised to see that often their campaigns are 95% going to Android users. That's not because the Android users are necessarily their best customers. It's because the Android users are the ones that they can match to their audience. So they're already missing a whole lot of iOS customers. And they may not even be realizing that yet. But the smart marketers are seeing that, are realizing that their audience is going to get harder and harder to find. So on the one hand, they're upping their loyalty strategy to get a lot of first-party data. But on the other hand, they're starting to test and learn new ways of expanding reach, new ways of finding efficiency, new ways of communicating and reaching out uh, to their audience without relying on first, second, or third-party data. Lisa, this is a great start to the conversation, and we look forward to having you back for part two. And we are back on the mic with our friends from Morning Brew, Atlandia. Let's give a big welcome, co-founders Austin Reef and Alex Lieberman. Welcome to Atlandia. Welcome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, we were just saying as we were getting ready to come into the episode, this is like total fans of um, all things in the Twitter feed. So we're excited to have you uh, and bring this conversation IRL. Kind of. Kind of. It's, uh, it's better than on Twitter, but not as good as in person. You both are very vocal founders and business leaders who are constantly sharing the journey that you both have been on in building your business. One of the things that struck Alexa and I as marketers is something that you posted, Alex, talking about the most underrated entrepreneurial skill is storytelling. Um, And as this is a podcast that is largely dedicated to the power of it, would love to hear, you know, what that means to you. And as you started, as you said, with a product and a vision, it was really storytelling that catapulted Morning Brew. Can you take us into that? Yeah. You know, my thought around this is Austin and I both went to uh, an undergrad business program at Michigan. And I would say most people in the undergrad business program were, were fighting for kind of the same three categories, really two categories of jobs, investment banking uh, and management consulting. And I think as a function of that, most people focused on attaining the skills that made the most sense for those jobs. So things like 
you know, financial analysis, accounting, uh, operations. Um, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Those are really important things. Those are skills that, you know, any business professional should have proficiency in. But what was always interesting to me is that the skill, whether you want to call it sales or communication or storytelling, it wasn't talked about a lot. There was one class that everyone took that was a joke for most people in business communications. And, you know, the reason I, I tweeted about that was just in reflecting on kind of what are the biggest things that I think most founders or entrepreneurs leverage in order to propel their business forward. I think storytelling has to be in kind of the top three, if not the number one, yet it's not, people aren't incentivized to really get great at storytelling uh, in college. And when I posted about that, I was kind of just referring to verbal storytelling, but I think it actually is more broad than that. It's verbal storytelling, it's written storytelling, and it's visual storytelling. And I think we've seen examples of great creators or experts in those different areas build massive audiences on the internet because people are realizing on the internet and not necessarily in school how important those things are. I look at the number of newsletter-led businesses that have emerged over the last, let's even call it 12 to 18 months. There are a number of choices. When thinking about the plot of your story on paper, it could look similar to a lot of other value props that are out there. What would you say was the plot twist of Morning Brew that could take it from the product you rolled out with to really where you hope to see this business grow? I think the, the plot twist was, well, there was a few. The, the first one was when we identified very early on that the content was not just for college students, but it was for everyone. At first, it was Alex who was really doing it for his friends. And they were doing it for other colleagues or just people in the business school. But when we went to our internships or our jobs and we realized that this wasn't just for college students, but it was for professionals as well, that was a big moment where the market went from college kids, which is a nice market, but not that big and not that valuable, to be totally honest, to everyone. And we had CEOs of big companies reading and we had investment banking analysts. And so that was the first thing. Who was the first big CEO that you saw subscribe? There was the CEO of Time Warner Cable, who ended up investing in Morning Brew early on. He was, I'd say, the first big person who we didn't know signed up, and then we found out signed up. We used to every night go through the list and see who signed up. I think the second thing was Alex and I both knew the tone and voice we wanted to hit on in every single newsletter. We know we couldn't do that. We know that we knew that we had the vision. But we couldn't execute it on every single day, every single sentence of every single newsletter. We could do it for small chunks, a sentence, a paragraph, maybe even a single newsletter, but not 365 days a year. And when we found writers who could write in the tone we wanted it written in, that was the second inflection point, aha moment, whatever, which was, okay, now we can focus on the business. Really early on, me growth, Alex sales even because we had some content people. So that was the second really big moment where we knew the audience and then we knew the content could hit. And the third was sales. It was, can we get brands to advertise in Morning Brew? And can we continue to champion this idea of creating native advertising? Right. We knew banners weren't going to 
we weren't going to build a big business off of the backs of banner ads in the newsletter. So once those three hit, the audience, the content and sales, we knew we had a business. Who was your first paid partner? It was uh, Emla Hart, a uh, college memorabilia business that did like branded college rings and other, uh, you know, college apparel. It was an $800 ad. They bought three of them, $2,400 total. And the only reason we got it was because one of our original investors in the brew, he had a relationship with them and he said he was helping us earn some beer money. So that was that was the first advertisement partner. The first one we like earned for ourselves was University of Virginia. And the first big partner was Discover Card. What was the time frame from memorabilia to Discover Card? Well, Discover Card we started speaking to when I was at Michigan, because I'll never forget they came to us and they said, We're gonna send you an RFP. And I immediately said, that sounds great. What is an and then RFP? went and Googled what an RFP was. I had, I had no idea, not a clue. I, I mean, just I couldn't even begin to guess what it was. But so I just remember pacing in the auditorium at Michigan, just talking on this call with senior marketers at one of the agencies. I can't remember which one it was about Discover. So that was beginning of 2017. And they were tossing around numbers like, uh, I remember they they said they were going to RFP us for uh, a hundred thousand, two hundred fifty thousand, and five hundred thousand. <laughs> and basically, what I had to tell them was for five hundred thousand, they could own the company five times over. <laughs> and we had we had like, we had like twenty thousand subscribers, maybe. Yeah, he, he's not he's not joking. <laughs> it was like send to like Alex and my mom, like that. That was the list. the The CMO of Discover Card, her daughter, I believe, introduced her to Morning Brew. And so she reached out to the agency saying, hey, what they're doing is really cool. Would love to partner with them. So the agency thought, oh, Morning Brew, they're buttoned up, all of this stuff. And it was just Alex and I. And we had no idea what we're doing. So it wasn't even, there's not, you couldn't fake it till you make it, right? At some point, it's just so ridiculous. And so we had to come clean and we're like, yeah, this is ridiculous. You know, we, we, we can't do anything with half a million dollars. But the big thing we did is we said, but how many subscribers do we need to have? For you to actually care about us. Because at the time, we didn't know. We weren't sure, was it 10,000, 50,000, 100,000, a million? We had this idea that we could get to a place where big brands would care about us, but we didn't know what that point was. And they started throwing out numbers like 100,000 subscribers. And so that for a while was our North Star. And I think around the end of 2017, that's when we started to work with them, was when we actually had 100 ish thousand subscribers. So I was listening to how I built this with Guy Raz. And I think, Austin, you were talking about the future of media is definitely niche and distributed. What does that mean in your business today? And how do you think about niche and scale? I think oftentimes people confuse the word niche and small. Niche doesn't mean small. What we're learning is that the internet is a very large place. There's a lot of people in the world. And these niches can have tons and tons and tons of followers. And so at first, we call ourselves this niche publication. And to some extent, we still are. People who want to consume, who want to opt in to consume business news in a newsletter, in a conversational tone, every single day is fairly niche. It's not huge. But 
Now we start thinking about, okay, we have this audience of 3 million plus. And of course, we want to scale that and get that bigger. But that's not the only way we view growth anymore. We have a goal at Morning Brew to do two things. One, make people better at their job. And we do that through our B2B publications, as we call them. So we have retail brew, we have marketing brew, we have emerging tech brew. So to use one of those as an example, we for retail brew, we try to think about how many different ways can we serve a retail professional. Events, podcasts, uh, whatever it may be within that vertical. And so right now, we have newsletters, web content, and events. And we're constantly thinking about what else is next. Could it be job boards or whatever else? But then on the other side of things, that's not job-specific or industry-specific, we think about how can we make people well-rounded business minds? And there's four categories we're really interested there. Business, money, career, and lifestyle. And so as you break those down, like so take, for example, money, we're going to think about how can we create content in the money vertical? It's mostly personal finance and investing. So you could argue investing is niche. But the number of people who would like to consume investing content in some way, whether it's a Twitter video or an Instagram post or a podcast, is really, really large. So we're just starting to break down the content we create and target these niches that our audience cares about. But my belief is these niches of you know, productivity or investing are really, really big. Alexa and I used to meet with um, media, you know, sales teams all the time who were coming in from you know big legacy networks and publications to niche startups. And the common denominator slide, slide number one, was how many people you reach, right? Like Austin, you said the first question you asked, well, how many, how many uh, subscribers do we have to get to to actually validate the cost you're willing to pay? But what if at the time those twenty thousand readers? We're spending on average, you know, an hour plus with morning brew content in the community. We're deeply engaged. We're advocates for the brands who were a part of the morning brew community. Would that be worth five hundred thousand dollars? It's a really interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that it all comes down to incentives, right? When you think what you guys are talking about, how it's like crazy thinking about audience in mass scale and not having focus and monetizing it that but i think when you think about incentives drive people it starts making sense why brands and why publishers have valued the wrong things in the past the incentive for the marketer at the brand in the past was to make their boss happy what their boss valued was getting in front of exactly one shit ton of people and so if you could get in front of that many people and make your boss happy, you were happy because your boss was happy with you. On the publisher side, if you had a business model that forced you to get in front of tons of eyeballs because your costs were high, you needed to be at big scale to create any sort of margin for your business. Again, your incentive is to get a lot of people reading to make the economics of your business work. I think in order to think in this, what feels like a common sense way, your incentives need to be aligned with thinking through common sense. So common sense KPIs look like? I, I mean, I would just basically say the, the reason we've been, been able to think about things in this way is it all started with, I would say at the core, the value of curation, right? The value of curation is what allowed us with one newsletter to have the same number of writers when we had 10,000, 100,000, and 3 million readers. 
And when you have the same cost basis and you continue to grow your audience, your margin grows. And so you don't have to worry about like, obviously we want to scale Morning Brew's audience, but we're just as interested in getting people into our ecosystem through things that aren't just our daily newsletter and also retaining and engaging our daily newsletter readers with other things that we create. We don't have the incentive to have to get from 3 million to 10 million just for the sake of having enough margin as a business to have a business that makes sense. Yeah. And most businesses, especially legacy, I guess now they're legacy. I don't mean the Times or the Journal, but some of these publishers who are popular and have been on the internet for 15, 20 years, they monetize their content with ads around their content. Banner ads, you know, programmatic pre-roll. We're not going to compete with BuzzFeed and Vice on SEO and search terms. We're just not going to do it because they've been on the internet for two decades or however long they've been around. So we have to compete by building brands that people are passionate about, that they care about, and partner with brands in really clever ways to generate higher CPM ads. But the CPM, the higher CPM ads make sense because it's not this banner that's chasing you around the internet, but it's actually an integration into our podcast, into our social. To Austin's point, this whole thing is like, if we can create great niche content, what you're effectively doing is targeting a specific psychographic, a specific problem that's being solved or a passion that's being filled for our audience. And so by doing that, you have the ability to not just create content in one place, but create content around like an actual franchise and a brand. And what that allows you to do is that when you go to market and partner with a brand, you, you know they're not just getting native ads in Morning Brew. They're not just getting placement in a social post. They're not just getting a host read in a podcast. They're getting all of the things to exist everywhere and align fully with the franchise that is focused on a specific niche. You know, so for Heineken, um, we're working with them on uh, their 0.0 or 00 uh, product, which is their non-alcoholic beer. And they get to align with Business Casual, which is the, the marquee podcast product at Morning Brew. But we don't even refer to it as a podcast anymore. It is a franchise that has podcast, that has newsletter, that has social content, that also gets extended into our daily newsletter. And Heineken 00 get those touch points in all four places that I just mentioned. So that one stands out to me. The other one that stands out to me was the work that we did with uh, Fidelity, with Fresh Invest, where we created a custom uh, interview style podcast with them. It was a limited series where basically I was the host. I would introduce Fresh Invest. I would talk through the biggest things happening in the markets in the last few days. And then I would interview a, a Fidelity employee who is an expert in one of the topics of the financial markets news that I was covering in that episode. And we did that as a limited series. It ended up getting, you know, 2x the downloads that we were expecting on the show. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, another season for that coming up. But that was a really good experience of, you know, if you look at the, the, the ratings for the podcast, if you look at people's experience, people felt like it was a genuine content franchise where they learned about the financial markets from experts. And it just so happened to be created in partnership with Fidelity. That's awesome. I love, love, love that you guys are talking about ecosystems and franchises. I actually like ecosystems because when you start to think about who's created IP and content ecosystems, you start thinking about Disney, Marvel, blah, 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 blah. But there haven't been a lot of publishers who have created 
these types of they've tried. Laura and I have like sat with some of them. They've tried, but unsuccessfully, I think, in the past, um, who've really created these sustainable ecosystems all based on specific audiences. As you guys started thinking about this, was this an intentional build? This is a little rhetorical question, but like it was this an intentional build into ecosystems and franchises? Was it were you looking at the entertainment world and starting to see what was happening? In the last, you know, seven, eight years in terms of like really building out the IP, what led you to the infrastructure here and the kind of framework that you're going after? I think there are a few great examples of of people or companies that are doing this that really inspired us. And so to your point, yeah, I mean, the, the, the scale players aren't doing this. They don't need to. And in fact, it's probably... To be honest, those scale players, it's probably disrupting themselves. They probably can't do it. Just it's not in their DNA to build this. But you look at, if you're familiar with the churning group and their portfolio, yep. whether it's Food 52 or Meat Eater or Barstool or Crunchyroll, any of these franchises, they've taken these niche audiences. Now they're doing it with uh, Golden Auctions, which is an auctioneer house. They're, that, that's actually more commerce. And now they're going to build out content, I assume. They've done a really interesting job there. Same with, if you look at The Ringer, they've done a really interesting job with some of this. And esports teams, you look at 100 Thieves or these other esports teams, they've done a a better job than most media companies of building franchises and building passionate audiences and selling them commerce and selling them tickets to uh, to, in-person esports competitions and events. Those are some of the people we look at as inspiration for what we're doing. Was it premeditated though? Like I want to get, because what I love when you were talking about uh, in the, how I built this, and I think it was really honest and I have to commend you guys on your, um, on your kind of level of transparency, um, building in public and, and doing it, what feels really earnestly, um, which is super refreshing and absolutely a part of your brand, which you've already kind of talked about. I started listening to the founder's journal. And one of the things that you said was, we really kind of didn't know. We used our naiveness about the media business to actually succeed here. When you're talking about franchising this stuff out in these ecosystems, this is actually a pretty big deal in terms of a business infrastructure and thinking through this. So was that premeditated? What I would say is to, to the point of us building in a, in a naive fashion, I would say for the majority of the life of the business, that is how things went down. and. Um, you know, uh, Paul Graham has a great essay about independent thinking, and one of the, you know, when when he tries to to guide people through how can you be a more independent thinker, one of the things he always refers to is having a beginner's mindset. What what is one of the best ways to have a beginner's mindset is literally to have a beginner's mind is like not even know this the way that things have been done. That is how we started building our business because we had no exposure to media, and when you a- asked about. How have we gone into ecosystems? I think it was more just like us thinking linearly about serving our audience and also what brands were asking for. So it's like we started with newsletters and then we said, well, one, we wanted to diversify away from just creating newsletter content. And our audience doesn't just read newsletters when they read about business. That's what guided us to podcasting because we said what Morning Brew has built is a really intimate 
relationship with a really obsessive audience, there's nothing more intimate than hearing a personality or a brand speaking to you in your ears. And then as we've gone into other things, whether it be social content, going more into video content, going into events, that has been furthering that narrative of what are all the ways that we can serve the modern business leader in the two big needs that Austin talked about? Um, How can we do all of those things? And at the same time, we've heard from brands how what they hope to do is get in front of our audience in a way where they are hitting multiple touch points of that ecosystem, where it truly feels like an ecosystem and not just a single product placement here and a single product placement there. I, I would say now, you know, especially with Austin at the helm, we are way more meditated in how we are building out these ecosystems. But I would say for the vast majority of the business, it was really linearly thinking about what does our audience want and also what are brands asking for. Well, I think it's a difference between franchises versus form factors. When you think about what leads, right, especially for, from a consumer standpoint, to stop leading with the form factor first, but it is the perspective and community that we are building as creators that we should be putting the premium against. It's funny you bring this up. We've been talking about this a lot at The Brew. We spoke for the last year about this transition from newsletter company to media company. And what all that means is, we transition from a medium, which is newsletter, to multi-platform. And we now lead with whatever platform best serves the audience in that niche with the talent, personalities, whatever we have. And so as we go into personal finance, if it makes sense to be newsletter heavy, we'll be newsletter heavy. If it makes sense to be video heavy, we'll be video heavy. And so Initially, we people did call us a newsletter, and most people still think of us as a newsletter business. I think it's going to take a while. I think my goal is where a lot of people actually discover us not through Morning Brew, right? They listen to Business Casual, and they're like, oh, I didn't either one, what is Morning Brew? Or I didn't know Morning Brew has this podcast. That'd be awesome. And if we can do that in all these verticals. And this is not a one or three, even three or five-year vision. This, is, this takes years. You look at the companies who successfully done this. Food 52 is a great example. Yeah. It's taken a long time. A really meat eater is another one. If you're not familiar with meat eater, they're a really interesting brand that no one really talks about. It's at least not in the, the New York City media circuit because they cover hunting and fishing. But that company has scaled tremendously. And now they have all their own, they have a ton of brands. They bought a commerce brand. So they're selling hunting gear. And you can only sell pro- product to a, uh, to, your audience, if they actually care about you. You can't sell things to your audience if they don't care about you. And so that that's the goal. Are there other bets as you think about this modern business leader you're serving that push media beyond form factor, but push media as we know it into new territories that perhaps some of the legacy competitors in your category aren't thinking about, but you know that the customer is interested in? A hundred percent. So we have a ways to go till we're really there, right? So right now we're testing out this, this cohort-based course called MBA, which our first test into non-ad-based revenue. And it's really exciting, but I see a world in which we're not just a media brand, but we're a consumer brand where people don't... We're, yes, we create content, but just like every commerce brand out there is trying to create content, I think we can beat all of them to creating commerce. And so... That cohort-based course is one thing we're doing. But I see a world in which 
we have content in investing and content in business news and content in productivity. And maybe in the productivity vertical, we have a morning brew journal that helps you, you know, journal every day. And that's a, I don't know, you buy that every three months or so. And that's a product that franchise sells. And maybe we have financial products in the investing vertical. And maybe in the news vertical, we have a community that talks about certain types of news. And in retail, which is the B2B side of things, we have a once a year annual event. So just like these other companies I mentioned have evolved over time and started to build out different types of content, blur the lines between what's a content company, what's just a consumer brand. That is where we want to play. But we have a lot of work to be done in terms of just we just started to build on social and build video and the, the pie we have one we have two two podcasts always on and then one podcast Alex mentioned we did uh, as a one off and so we've just scratched the surface in terms of what we're capable of doing and so we have a lot of runway in terms of what we can get done and we're really excited about being able to do all of that this takes really specific talent how are you guys thinking about creative talent and hiring creative talent, is there a different kind of requirement or person you're looking for? We have an incredibly talented team. We have, it's, you know, it's not specific. Alex is, is more creative than I am. So he can talk more about the people we have on the team, but we just hire really talented creative people. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just say that people always ask us, how is our writing so good? And there really is no secret. We hire incredible writers. We like to say we go unicorn hunting every time we hire a writer because you need to find someone who is obsessed with the news, someone who is really well informed, someone who has great writing chops, who writes with flow, who just like writes extremely well, and someone who's funny but isn't trying to write laugh out loud jokes, is able to intertwine humor, wit, um, and punchiness with the stuff that they're writing, I think talent will work the same way, just in a in a different type of context with social or with multimedia. I mean, we're already seeing this, right? With Morning Brew's TikTok, which has gone from zero to twenty, almost twenty seven thousand followers in a few months. Daniel Toomey, who's been our talent on there, um, he was an inbound person who applied to the business. We're just going to have to change the lens through which we assess social, audio, or video talent, but we're going to look for the same mix, which is who who are the people that are able to marry entertainment and information in a way that creates the Morning Brew voice that has become you know a special part of our IP. I want to go to like a quick speed round of questions. What is a topic that you think in the business world that gets you so excited that you want to go deep on and no one's really covered it the right way or the way you want to cover it? I would say DeFi. I've been recently reading up on DeFi. What is DeFi? Decentralized finance. And I'm sure people have covered it the right way. It's one of those things where I feel like such an outsider, even trying to consume some of the content where I'll read a tweet storm on DeFi. And I'll see a term or a phrase or something that is matter of fact in that conversation. I don't know. And I'll look that up. And I'll have no idea what that means. And then I'll read that. And you have to keep on pulling back layers of the onion. And then they just a really complex topic. Yeah. Well, m- maybe a listener on the podcast can sponsor it and then we'll do it. Alex, what about you? Topic. 
you know, normally I say the creator economy, but I'm going to switch it up this time. And what I'm going to say is studying totally different businesses in other countries. That's a relevant thing for me just because like recently companies that I've been looking at are China-based or India-based. And you find entirely different models that haven't been tested or haven't reached um, mass market in the US. And I think that's such an amazing arbitrage in general. Like There are different arbitrages for business opportunities. One is creating a business for a younger generation that's been done for an older generation, but it hasn't been done for a younger generation. That's quite literally morning brew. I think another example of that arbitrage is studying businesses in other countries and then bringing them stateside. I think you're even starting to see that like with the recent news around podcasts um, and like Apple, Spotify, NPR introducing obviously paid podcasts like that. That has existed in China for many years. Okay. Dream brand partner. Who is it? Lululemon. Why? Oh, tell me you wear men's Lululemon. Yeah, I'm wearing, I'm wearing some <laughs> Lululemon right now. Yeah. I'm big, big Lulu guy. And now they own Mirror. You can really do. do a cool campaign with Mirror and Lululemon, Morning Brew, Alex Lieberman, model, executive chairman, bring it all together. Well, Alex, who's your dream partner? So I'm going to say this uh, because Austin did a realistic one. I'm going to do an unrealistic one, but if it ever happened, I'd, I'd just go into retirement right then and there is uh, Tesla, not only because they don't spend on marketing, but I just envision a world in which when it's fully autonomous, you have a whole campaign around what work looks like in an autonomous vehicle and think it would be sick. What is your legacy headline? If you look back when all is said and done, what would you like to sum up in a headline about Morning Brew? That's a question you should have asked us to prepare for before. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Ah, this is cliche or it's a bad answer, but I want, I mean, we, and we said this from day one, this was this analogy we used, the way that our parents' generation, the way boomers look at the Wall Street Journal, especially the most passionate boomers where they read it every day, but also they get the Wall Street Journal wines magazine and they go to the, the wine tastings and all of that stuff, that type of interaction and that type of uh, daily you know, thinking about that brand I want that to be the way people think about Morning Brew, but compound that with the fact that we now have the internet and we have digital. And so it's not a once, you don't consume a paper once a day, but you consume digital products all day long. And so that's the analogy I want people to make is Morning Brew did for for millennials or Gen Z or whatever, what the Wall Street Journal did for boomers. What about you, Alex? Yeah, I would say it's... Uh... Just a, a, a different angle on the same type of take, right? We're, we're talking basically at the end of the day, our goal is ubiquity for our generation. Um, I want rap songs to be written about us. Uh, I want uh, people to reference the brew on big TV shows that come out on Netflix. Because when things like happen, happen like that, you reach a level of cultural ubiquity that only happens when you've truly served an obsessive audience for a long period of time. Before we go, we play a game with all of our guests. Bye, bye, bye. What would you get rid of? What would you buy or acquire? And what would you do yourself? I would buy, on behalf of Morning Brew, a financial service company. I don't know what, but I do think eventually Morning Brew is going to get into financial products. So that's, again, that's the 10-year vision. I think I would 
create a tequila brand. Ooh, now we're talking. Now we're talking a partnership. Yeah, that's collaboration all the way. Spicy margaritas are the official drink of Atlantia. Tequila shots are the official drink of Austin Reef. So, <laughs> <laughs> and what are what are you getting rid of? I would get rid of the sentiment that ad based businesses are bad. I think it is ludicrous, and I think bad ad ad based businesses are bad. So I think all bad businesses are bad. But I don't think all ad based businesses are bad just because a few people ran or poorly ran ad based businesses. So you just landed yourself a keynote at the next IAB conference. What about you, Alex? This is a tough one. Um, okay, so let's just start uh, by what what would I buy? Well, I was going to say a financial services company um, because I think there's just a lot of technology we wouldn't want to figure out and we'd want from a partner. But Austin said that, so I'm going to go with I would buy a failed. Uh, direct-to-consumer uh, apparel brand, something like a, a combatant gentleman, a brand that did not work out well, but is for the modern business leader and is a what we think a quality product, but the economics of the business, they just didn't run it prudently. I would buy that business. Who would I say buy to or what would I say buy to? Um, I would say buy that I'm now I'm just cheating because I said this on Twitter. I would say buy to the word orthogonal. I think it's such a <laughs> douchey startup word. It's a good word, but I just there has to be a better way to say what orthogonal means. And the only person who I give um permission to use it is Ben Thompson because he uses it a lot, but he's also leagues uh smarter than all of us, so he can use it. And then buy BY um a journal brand. I like I just think, especially with Founders Journals, the audience uh, uh, continues to grow. Literally, can have a journal called Founders Journal or a journal brand by Founders Journal that gets featured in all social content with all recordings of episodes. And I think, given we're we could actually literally create niche journal brands for decision journaling, for different job functions, for uh, for mental wellness, for professionals focused on like specific prompts for your mental health. And the best thing about a journal business is not only the margin, um, but also you can make it into almost a recurring revenue product where people use up all their pages and then they need to get the next journal. So Alex, Austin, if people want to get in touch with you to journal, make tequila, or do business with the brew, how can they get in touch with you? You can sign up for Morning Brew newsletters at morningbrew.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Austin underscore Reef, R-I-E-F. First, you'll go and sign up for all the Brews products where Austin just said, morningbrew.com. Then you'll listen. One of those products is Founders Journal. Would love for you to listen. And then uh, on Twitter, I'm Business Barista. Awesome, you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And please come back and visit. We will. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, guys. Thank you again to Alex and Austin for coming by. Great conversation. Going back to what we were talking about at the kind of beginning of the show, it really codified my thinking and some of the things that we used to do together where we would have conversations with CROs at big media companies, but we would be asking and pushing on what IP do you have? This was what, 2012, 2013? What's your IP? What's your most valuable IP? Talent, et cetera, technology, et cetera. And what happened 
because we were asking those questions, we stopped having conversations just with the sales teams. We started having conversations with the founders, the CEOs, and the chief product officers. And maybe more importantly, the chief product officers. So really the people who are driving the technology, thinking about audiences and developing products in media for audiences. And that completely changes the conversation that you have on the brand to partner side if you're actually starting to develop with develop products, think about audiences with a chief product officer at a media company. And I think that there are actually still few chief product officers titled kind of quote unquote properly. But I believe we're going to see a lot more, a lot more chief product officers entering, entering into the world of media. You know, it's interesting if you go back in the episode, the transition from newsletter to podcast, um, because there was an intimate relationship that existed with an obsessive audience. That pairing of the commercial side coupled with the content side, when you're picking up the signals, insights, inputs from audience hits on um, what, what you're noting around bringing product officers forward with revenue officers and having those conversations with marketers. How can advertisers be a part of it and build not just media product, but ad product around yes. it? And in, in that intimate relationship with obsessive audience, note, it does not look like impressions. It does not look like clicks. It looks like conversations. It looks like how many sweatshirts I sold last quarter to people who are engaged with my community. And so could you imagine, Alexa, and we've sat down in many of these conversations with publishers, CROs, and sales teams, if that pitch deck started with X media company, we sold X sweatshirts with our logo on it last quarter versus we reached X audience. Could you imagine the conversation that that would have started for us and just what, what's happening there? Tell us yep. about that. Yep. I think it just signals something different, which is the participation factor. And in that participation factor, new ad products and monetization models should emerge. Two things there. One, I think that we too easily equate scale with volume, like that so on the nose, direct impressions, giant audiences. You can scale. And in fact, brands are doing it all the time, scaling with niche audiences. And Austin, Austin talked about that. He was like, and I kind of pushed him. So he hit home the point that niche and scale are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they work together. And so when you start to think about that, are we even defining scale the right way? Do we have the right tools to really think about and design for scale vis-a-vis -vis niche? And then two, that participation factor, how do we allow and invite the audience to own part of the experience because that is where the fire happens. That point is really interesting when you think about how much time, attention, engagement, money is left on the table when you go vertical versus building horizontally. And so you can scale that niche by moving into and diversifying your product portfolio, as we heard the brew intends to do. I think it's a really interesting inflection point 
for media companies in thinking about Ted Lasso included, how I moved from form and function to franchise and thinking about the newsletter or a streaming show, which now has the ability to move into and engage with community in new ways that widely opens up the aperture for business. Totally. And with that, Atlantia will be back in two weeks. Laura hit it with the list of all of our friends and family at iHeart who have been so good to us and helped us get back on air. Big thank you to Bob, Connell, Carter, Andy, Eric, Gail, Val, Michael, Jen. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. We'll see you in two weeks. So, uh, Ryan, what Ted Lasso character are you? I really wish I was Roy Kent, but (laughs) I am, in fact, a Nate through and through. You are a little bit of a Nate. I hope that his his arc goes where I, I think it's going, where he'll have a bit of redemption from being a little bit of a jerk this season. Oh, but, he's uh, totally he's but he's not a jerk and you're not a jerk. He's like a s- secret killer. He's a secret right. killer. Yeah, you don't you don't see him coming and then he'll just drop some some knowledge bombs. Ryan, if you had to cast Alexa and I. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, well, Laura has to be it's it's a tough toss up because I know you probably both want to be the Keeley, but I feel like I feel like Laura is kind of the Keeley in in this vibe. And with an I, occasional uh, mix of Roy Kent. With a little bit of Roy. I think Laura's a little Roy Kent. A little Roy Kent. Yeah. I think Laura will be our Roy. That's a good call. Mm-hmm. All right, Ryan. Who am I? Who am I? I I have to go with with the boss lady with the team owner. I feel oh. like that's more your vibe. Oh, like, right. Wait, wait. So you think I'm like race. dishonest and like doing weird investigative no, work? No, I think you're two season three. I think that you're you're definitely the uh, the leader that surprises. That's very much in uh-huh. touch with the team and uh, and knows the way to go. Nate, you just got promoted. Nate, you just got promoted. Get assistant, the assistant coach. <laughs> You're definitely our assistant coach. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.